Hi everyone. Before we begin today, I want to give a shout out to the Wayland Utani Corporation for sponsoring this week's show. Whether it's bioweapons, reverse engineering, special services, weapons manufacture, or intergalactic face hugging xenomorphs, the Wayland Utani Corporation's got your back. The Wayland Utani Corporation, building better worlds. Howdy partners and welcome once again to the Hi-Hat Film Podcast, the rootinest, tootinest film podcast at the side of the Mississippi. We have a real barn burner of a show for you today as another Hi-Hatter submits a film for consideration to be included into the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame. This week we go all the way back to 1949 for the John Ford Western, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. The film follows John Wayne's cavalry captain Nathan Brittles as he goes on one final patrol days before his retirement. It's a colourful piece of escapism described in its original theatrical trailer as, and I'm not making this up, a lusty romance and adventure of the untamed West. It was certainly a wilder time when men rode horses and competed for the affections of the only single woman within a 250 mile radius. John Wayne is on superb form, showing an extra layer to his usual surly gunslinging shtick, and he's backed up by a stellar cast of memorable characters. But is it enough to earn it a spot in the Hall of Fame, where it will sit forever alongside the Big Lebowski, Princess Mononoke, Theatre of Blood, Fight Club, Kill List, and Stand By Me? Or will it be buried up to its neck in sand and left to rot in the proverbial desert plains of movie obscurity? We shall find out in due time, but first, here's a trailer. Drama moves here. Raw, violent, real. You live the robust days of frontier men. They're nights of danger. They're laughs. They're love. You feel the penetrating chill of savage war cries, the piercing impact of an arrow shot from ambush, of Indians of all nations banded together for one last war on the advancing white men. And into this danger-infested land comes one woman, young, provocative. Because of her, men fight heroically. Because of her, men die. I know all this is because of me. Only the man who commands can be blamed. Rests on me. Don't pull rank on me. You've been green-eyed ever since she put on that yellow ribbon. Button up that shirt, mister. You can sneer all you want to, but you keep your paws off my girl. We must stop this war, pony that walks. Too late, Nathan. Too late. And so here we are again in the hi-hat film headquarters for another submission into the illustrious Hall of Fame and joining me this time from Scotland we've got Ronnie. Hi Ronnie, welcome to the show. Hi there. Good to have you along. Um, very interesting pick of your film this week. Well I hope that um, your many listeners will find it interesting. But uh... I know it was a struggle for you, you went back and forth with a couple of options and that kind of delayed us getting the, the show on the road as it were but yeah. ultimately it came down to a heart overruling the head kind of thing with you wasn't it? 
I think that's correct, yes. I don't think that um, my choice could ever be uh, portrayed as a great intellectual masterpiece or uh, to a great groundbreaking film, but it is a very, very good film of this particular type. We'll, we'll get to all of that in just a minute. I'm looking forward yeah. to talking about it. But before that, of course, we do have to determine whether you're worthy of submitting a film. So we're going to do, first of all, a couple of quick-fire questions, if that's all right with you. Okay. All right, so you're just going to answer them as okay. quick as you can. Try not to think about it too much, just the first answer that comes to your head. First up, uh, fitting for your topic of film, John Wayne or Clint Eastwood? John Wayne. Do you prefer going to the cinema or watching a film on DVD? I much prefer the cinema. Citizen Kane or The Third Man? The Third Man. Sean Connery or Roger Moore? Sean Connery. Blazing Saddles or Paint Your Wagon? Paint Your Wagon. David Lean or John Ford? John Ford. The Big Lebowski or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The Big Lebowski. And finally, is apologising a sign of weakness? It certainly is. <laughs> all right. Um, all right, good. Well, you've passed the first test. The, um, I think we can move forward with that. The next one up is uh, the second round of a game we debuted on last week's show, which is Attack of the Rotten Tomatoes, which we're calling it Tomatoes this week because uh, you're from that side of the Atlantic as opposed to the American last week when we played Attack of the Rotten Tomatoes. So... Yeah. So it's based on the scorings from the critic website, Rotten Tomatoes, where they compile all of the film reviews from a particular film from major media outlets, and they give it a percentage depending on how many positive or negative reviews it's had. So basically you you have to go higher or lower, essentially. It's Brucey's Play Your Cards Right with their film titles. Right, so you've got three categories that you can choose from for films this week. Your three categories are boxing movies, musical biopics, or James Bond films. I'll go for James Bond films. James Bond films it is. Alright, so... I'm going to start off, going to go back to one of the classics, and it's going to be a high percentage for you. We're starting with Dr. No. Yeah. Which had a positive review rating of 98%. Okay, so that is your starting point. Your next film on that sequence is the Daniel Craig 2008 Quantum of Solace. Now, do you think that had a higher or lower rating than Dr. No? I can tell you that Quantum of Solace, with its baffling title and ludicrous plot scored a disappointing 64%, so you were correct to say lower, so one for one so far, Ronnie. Thank you. Alright, next up is, we're going from Daniel Craig to my personal favourite James Bond in Piers Brosnan. Mm-hmm. He was in a lot of bad James Bond films. There was one in 1997 called Tomorrow Never Dies, in which there was a global media conglomerate trying to take over the world. Do you think that scored higher or lower than Quantum of Solace? Which got 64%. Yes. Um, I'm going to say marginally higher. Marginally higher. Tomorrow Never Dies came in with a score of 57%. So I'm sorry to say you were wrong on that one. So yeah, you've got yeah. one, out, one out of two. We're going to carry on. It's out of ten. Right. So your next one 
Continuing our theme of forgettable Piers Brosnan movies is The World Is Not Enough, which I believe starred Robert Carlyle as the bad guy. Came out two years after Tomorrow Never Dies. Tomorrow Never Dies had 57%. The World Is Not Enough. Um, do you think that scored higher or lower? I'll go higher. Higher? The World Is Not Enough came in at 51%, so unfortunately... Oh, yeah. These are tricky ones, because they're all fairly lackluster Pierce Brosnan efforts, and they all kind of merge together. Alright, so your next one then is... Well, if we're talking theme songs, it certainly scores higher, but it is Live and Let Die. Yeah. Higher. That's got to be higher. Got to be higher. Yeah. If you had to have a guess, and this won't affect your score, what, what percentage well, would you put Live or Let Die at? Well, the soundtrack was a big hit, and... Uh, I seem to remember it was pretty well received. I'm going to go for 78%. 78%. You were correct to say it came in higher. You kind of overshot it a little bit. It came in at 66%. Okay. That's the one where... Is that the one where he ends up messing with a voodoo shaman or something like that? I I haven't seen that one. I think it is, yeah. They tend to manage together, don't they? (laughs) Alright, so you're two for four at the moment, so you got a 50% success rate. Moving on from that, we're going with Goldfinger. Yes. Higher or lower than 66%? Goldfinger, I would have thought, was right up there with the the best of them. Uh, it's got some of the most enduring uh, scenes with a odd job and so on. Mm. I'm going to say higher. It is higher, and it's a good bit higher. At 96%, Goldfinger comes in. So, that's what you're at right now. You've got three out of five, so going pretty well so far. The next one, whether it comes higher or lower than 96%, is one that kind of rebooted the franchise. Daniel Craig's first one, Casino Royale, from 2006. Do you think that scored higher or lower than 96%? Got to be lower. Got to be lower. It is lower by... A margin of 1%, it came in at 95%, but you've got that one right as well, so congratulations. It was very, very well received, and I thought it was a wee bit overrated myself, I don't know about you, but... Okay, so, next up, again, we're exhausting our Daniel Craig catalogue, we're going to the 2012 effort Skyfall, which came out in 2012, I think that scored higher or lower, again, it was very well received, a lot of people thought it was one of the best... The best Bond yes. films. It's got a high bar to clear, though. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm gonna say it would be a little higher rating. Yeah. Well, there was three three percent difference between the two. Mm-hmm. Skyfall came in at ninety two percent. I'm sad to say. All right. So another another cross on you there. Did you see Skyfall? I did. Yes. What did you think of it? Yes. I thought it was good. Yeah, yeah. good. Yeah. I like the villain. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Alright, so what are you on now? One, two, three, four. You got four right so far. Next up is Thunderball. And the score to beat is 92%. This is the 1965 Sean Connery. Yes. Well, I mean, I'm just wildly guessing they were both the Connery films got a higher rating than Daniel Craig. There's a, there's a the risk that you're overthinking this slightly, Ronnie. Yeah, yeah. I don't actually think Thunderbolt's such a good film. Uh, I'm going to say lower. 
At 85%, you were correct to say Laura. Yeah. Okay, you've got, you've got two more. Okay. You've got two more. Um, the next one you have is one that was... It was spun off, it was satired into one of my favorite episodes of The Simpsons ever, starring Hank Scorpio. Scorpio! You only live twice. Twice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think that scored higher or lower than 85%? It was a great episode of The Simpsons. Did it make for a great uh-huh. James Bond film? What's the one that got 85% again? Thunderball. Thunderball, yeah. I'm going to say higher. At 73%, you only live twice. Again, disappointing. So you got one left here, and this is my favorite Bond film of all time. It was the first Pierce Brosnan one, Goldeneye. It's my own personal favorite Bond film from 1995. Sean Bean was a bad guy. Yeah, I don't think I've seen that, unfortunately. Uh, it's a good one. Yeah. Robbie Kilcher pops up in it. Seventy-three percent is this the yeah. to be? Yeah. I'm gonna say lower. Lower? Mm-hmm. At 82%, Goldeneye <laughs> is uh, a little bit higher than You Only Live Twice, so that finishes you off for Attack of the Rotten Tomatoes. Your final score was 5 out of 10. 5 out of 10. 5 out of 10, so a 50% success rate. Not bad, not bad. So a chimpanzee making a random selection probably would have scored the same as me. Uh, I think you're being a bit hard on yourself there, but... Alright, so... Maybe you were out of your element with the um, the James Bond films, but that's fair mm-hmm. enough. I hope that this run of bad luck doesn't carry on to being the first film that is not successfully submitted to well. the High High Hall of Fame. I'm very alive to that, Mr. Kishiri, don't worry. Okay, so let's go on to talk about your choice. It, um, from the year 1949, it is the oldest film to be submitted for consideration into the High Hat Hall of Fame. It... Features American legend John Wayne. It features one of my favorite directors in John Ford. Your film is She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. Correct. I I watched it again recently. I've got some thoughts on it, but before we get into it, it'd be great if you could just summarize the plot for us. Plot. Yeah. Well, it's set, I think, in 1879, which, for reasons which are not insignificant, is 15 years after the American Civil War. It is set in the Midwest of the USA, the sort of empty heart of the country as it then was. And in, at that time, it was very much a frontier zone. Um, people passed through it on their migrations from the East Coast to California, or they settled there. Not many people settled, but there were isolated wee towns here and there, uh, stagecoach uh, stage posts, and a bit of farming, cattle ranching, and the like. But very thin on the ground in terms of a European population. The indigenous population of the whole of the Midwest of America were uh, Indian tribes that had been there for thousands of years. Uh, who lived off the land hunting uh, and migrating around following the buffalo. They were displaced essentially from their ancestral grounds. They were rounded up and uh, 
confined to what were called reservations, which were usually fairly good areas of the land, but more importantly, their way of life was destroyed because they couldn't migrate after the buffalo. So the immediate context, sorry to labor the context, but the immediate context of the action in the film is that there has been a kind of uh, revolt across the land by the indigenous, indigenous Indian tribes. And the action is set in the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Little Bighorn, which is a historically uh, real event, where uh, General George Custer and about 180 of his men were uh, wiped out by uh, an Indian force, I think mainly of Sioux Indians. Mm -hmm. So in the aftermath of the Little Bighorn, uh, the Indians were on the march right across the Midwest and in the particular area of the country where this film is set, it was the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes who had come out of their reservations uh, and were marauding around the country attacking white settlements. That's the context. The action centres on the John Wayne character who's called Captain Nathan Brittles. Mm -hmm. Uh, he is a, a long, long-serving U.S. cavalry officer with a massive amount of experience of the frontier of fighting Indian wars in the past. He is a matter of only a few days away from his retirement, and he has to go out on a last patrol in the knowledge that there is a, an insurrection underway. His specific duty is to escort uh, his commanding officer's wife and niece to a stagecoach post where they are to uh, get a stagecoach away from the troubled area. He goes out on the patrol, there are certain minor skirmishes, uh, the mission is essentially a failure, they don't get to the stagecoach in time and they aren't able to deliver the two women to safety. So they have to come back to the fort where they're based, which I think is called Fort Stark, which is just a, a kind of rough-and-tumble uh, collection of buildings in the middle of nowhere. Anyway, they come back to the fort. The retirement is imminent. Uh, the main threat of the plot from there is that um, another major patrol has to go out to confront the Indian, uh, the renegades, and two of Nathan Brittle's junior officers are in command of that major patrol. However, on the last day of his service, he goes out again, he teams up with the junior officers uh, and in the hours, literally in the hours before he's due to retire, um, he uh, does two things. One is that he has a meeting with uh, an old uh, acquaintance of his, uh, a leading chief from the uh, Arapaho tribe and he has a power with him and they try to or to discuss the possibility of peace, but the old Indian chief says, it's out of my hands now, the young bucks are uh, on the warpath and you're going to have to deal with them. The plot then gets a bit corny, I think, because John Wayne, uh, intent on avoiding bloodshed, comes up with this master wheeze at the end where he gets his uh, troop of cavalry together and they're heavily outnumbered by Indians, but they have the element of surprise and they creep up on the Indian encampment at night and then they stampede the Indians' horses. Uh, and there's a, an action scene where that's what takes place. And the upshot of that is that the Indians are stopped in their tracks. There's no question of pursuing this 
um, this um, insurrection any longer because they've been deprived of their means of transport and their ability to fight the white man, so they all just go back to the reservations with their tails between their legs. That's the end of John Wayne's career in the US cavalry. They go back to the fort once again as a party scene, and then the ultra-happy ending is that at the last minute, orders come through that John Wayne has been appointed the chief scout of the US cavalry with the rank of lieutenant colonel, and so that means he gets to stay with his beloved US cavalry for the rest of his life. The, that's the main plot. Mm. There, I think one of the real virtues of the film is that there are some very strong subplots going on mm-hmm. uh, through, the, through the main events. And I think without them, in fact, the film would, would be fairly ordinary, but the interplay between the main action and the subplots is, is, is a very attractive feature of it, I think. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I won't go into them in any great detail, but there's a girl interest. Yeah. The niece is a, a bit of a looker, and the two junior officers are kind of vying for her affections in a rather um, old-fashioned sort of way. That has moments of uh, uh, interest and comedy. Particularly, particularly when the uh, second lieutenant, Purnell, attempts to take her off on a picnic. That's a splendid scene, yeah. yeah just just the way that, he, that John Wayne goes picnicking. Yeah. Just, just the way he says it. I, I bet that John Wayne had never uttered those words in his life before, and he says them, spits them out with such disdain at him, I think is tremendous. Yeah. It's also very well done the way that he humiliates the guy because he forbids the young lady from <laughs> leaving the post to go on the picnic, but then says to the guy, well, off you go, enjoy your picnic. <laughs> enjoy your picnic. And everybody's kind of laughing at him. That's, that's a very good thing. I mean, it's old-fashioned, very kind of innocent sort of comedy, but it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's certainly makes you chuckle. The, the second of the two subplots, which I really liked, and it's quite a subtle one, is this link back to the American Civil War because it's apparent that in the ranks of the U.S. cavalry, which after all was an army of the victorious side in the Civil War, the Union side, within that army there were large numbers of former Confederate, Confederate soldiers who everybody knew had fought for the Confederacy, but who then for want of anything better to do, joined the U.S. cavalry uh, and lived under assumed names, mm-hmm. and very often under you know lowly ranks. So one of the subplots are about the guy Sergeant Sergeant Tyree, who's a uh, about a dude, and he um, was you know a fairly high-ranking Confederate officer, and one other guy called who's I think known as Private Smith in the U.S. cavalry. He gets mortally wounded in the course of the first of the patrols I was telling you about mm. and uh, dies and is buried but he's given a full military funeral under his real name which is Brigadier General something or other of the Confederate Army right. and, all, and all the guys who were Confederate soldiers you know by the colonel's the colonel's wife or the major's wife rather makes him a wee Confederate flag to put on his grave mm. And the actual former Confederate soldiers are to the fore at the funeral, but the other guys, including Nathan Brittles and the others who are not in the Confederacy, you know, kind of are very respectful at the funeral as well. I don't know. There was something about that. I just quite liked that. It was a nice touch. Yeah. And it was. I said it was, and it was also very uh, subtly played, or relatively speaking, subtly played. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, 
let's let's um, kind of get into it a little bit more. Your connection yes. to the film, because in my opinion, there are better known John Wayne films. There's more. There's better known John Ford films. When you think of the western genre, this isn't necessarily one of the films that you would leap to when you think of cornerstones of that genre. But I don't want the Hall of Fame to be all the obvious ones. I don't want it to be a list of your Godfathers and your Apocalypse Nows and all of these ones. I, what I want is is these less obvious ones and people that are willing to stand up and make a case for them. So who yes. better to make a case for She Wore the, a Yellow Ribbon than somebody who has an absolute love for it? So wh- why do you love this film so much? You touched upon the fact, Michael, this is the oldest film that you've seen uh, nominated. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is 65 years old, yes. this film, um, which means it was made much closer to the start of the cinematic industry uh, than the present days away from uh, the date of its making. For people of my generation and people older than me, Westerns were one of the foremost uh, types of film that you could see, not just on the cinema, but TV films as well, TV series. They, I wouldn't say they dominated the cinema in those days, but they were easily the most prevalent type of film that you would see and you know up till 1949 when cinema was you know an extremely popular um, place of entertainment because there was no telly there would be westerns on in every cinema in the country every day of the week as B movies or as the main event so there is an extraordinarily powerful nostalgic uh, attraction uh, in this uh, for me mm-hmm. now of course that's not a reason in itself to uh, uh, to commend the film but it's worth making the point that for somebody who is a good bit younger than me who has no exposure to that kind of um, uh, nostalgic history I, I think it would be a revelation seeing a film like this for better or worse uh, because it, it, it speaks to you from a different age uh, and it's a film that was made for a very, very different audience from the type of audience that would go to the cinema now. Um, it's kind of from a pre-Beatles world, Age of Innocence, uh, where you know the rules about propriety and decency and all the rest uh, operated as an enormous constraint on what could be put into films, what people were allowed to see. And uh, that being uh, said, there's still a scene where a guy gets an arrow through a chest, the chest, and a guy gets hurled on the flames repeatedly. And that's, that's true. That's I, true. That's that's right. There is violence in that. That's unquestionably the case. Relatively speaking, it's still mm. pretty tame compared with what's shown now. But mm. yes, there is significant violence. In no, I, I was just surprised uh, to see such a scene, knowing yes. a little bit about the restrictions that were placed on films from that yeah. time. I thought they got away with more than than you would normally see from a film from that period. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, let me get past the nostalgia thing because that has been a personal attraction for me. Mm-hmm. Let me just fix out another feature of the film. The horses are absolutely fantastic in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, both on parade and galloping and everything else. If, if like me, you're an admirer of horses, then this is a great film to see and it's a really good film to see on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a comic element to that as well because you'll notice that when they're galloping, where people are being chased as they not infrequently are or where they're galloping to the rescue or something like that then the action is actually speeded up to, yeah. to make the horses look 
if we're going fast. <laughs> now we, you know, no, that would never have occurred to me or my generation when we saw the film initially. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so blindingly obviously that it's funny. Yeah. The scene, the scenery is unbelievable, mm-hmm. absolutely unbelievable. Um, it's filmed in the Monument Valley area, which is on the border between Arizona and Utah, and it was filmed on location. Um, it's just wonderfully endearing the uh, the landscape, the these great high mesas that are characteristic of the Arizona landscape, the sort of sheer sided uh, flat top mountains. That brings me to the other uh, thing. This this is a feature of the film that has stayed with me ever since I first saw it as a wee kid. The subplot that I haven't mentioned is the relationship between John Wayne, the John Wayne character, and his long-standing uh, sergeant, Sergeant Quinn Cannon, mm-hmm. who's played by the, um, the wonderful Victor McLagan. And he is, he is wonderful, it has to be said. He is absolutely wonderful, yeah. I mean, I, I was actually having a look at some features of his biography uh, earlier today, <laughs> which I didn't know anything about, which make him seem all the more wonderful, but just taking him at face value for his film appearances, he is absolutely superb. He, he as you know, plays this guy, Sergeant Quinn Cannon, who is a, a Ken Steckle uh, uh, Irish sergeant of as much, or virtually as much uh, experience in the cavalry as John Wayne himself has, and they have this kind of um, clearly very close relationship which uh, is nonetheless hidebound in the sort of formalities of um, the distinction between an officer uh, and a, a, a non-commissioned officer. Um, he's a drunk, he's a good-natured drunk. Um, the relationship between them culminates at the point where John Wayne comes back from the first unsuccessful patrol and is counting down the last few days to his retirement. and. He um, knows that uh, Quinn Cannon is an inveterate drinker who is always slugging from a whiskey bottle somewhere. He gets Quinn Cannon to try on a suit of civilian clothes that he, Nathan Brittles, has bought for himself for his retirement. And when Quinn Cannon is is wearing the clothes, he he says to him, uh, why don't you take yourself off to the the bar, uh, the saloon bar, which is in in the fort, in the cavalry post, and have a few drinks and here here's somebody to do so <laughs> so, so Kincannon goes tripping off and he has this marvellous kind of um, march uh, to the bar and he goes in and he starts getting wired into the whiskey in the meantime John Wayne goes off to find some other sergeant and says um, that Kincannon is out of uniform I want you to arrest him and put him in the guardhouse now it's kind of meant to be a ploy on Ripple's part to keep Kincannon out of trouble for the last few days of his army service. But the comedy comes when the sergeant who is to arrest him enlists the blacksmith and various other people uh, to go in a posse to try and uh, arrest Sergeant Cannon. And there is an absolutely hilarious fight sequence which is interspersed with the usual everybody stops down a drink of escape bar uh, before resuming it. Uh, I think that's something that they carry forward into the quiet man, don't they? When John Wayne has a big punch up with Victor McClurg in the map, they start putting the pub and have a, have a pint halfway through it. Hunt! I want you to help me arrest Quint Cannon. I'd love to throw that big rig in the cooler. You're under arrest.
arrest, Quint Cannon. By whom, orders? By order of Captain Brittles. Are you coming peaceably? Laddie, I've never gone any place peaceably in my life. The fight goes on, and it culminates in the, um, the Major's wife, who is uh, a figure of great affection and everybody's sort of um, female icon, uh, who comes into the bar and orders Quinn Cannon to go to the, to the guardhouse, and he meekly, of course, uh, follows her instruction and marches out. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to do justice to it, but it is a very, very good scene. It, it's fantastic, uh, and I might yeah, see if but, I can find a link of it on YouTube and post it up on the Facebook yeah, page. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, it's, it's wonderfully short. Yeah. So um, it's a kind of an amalgamation of these factors: the, the the nostalgia, the horses, the scenery, the comedy element, mm-hmm. and the, just the general uh, romance of the um, of the uh, the U.S. cavalry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to make a point that. There are serious issues about the film which you can raise in a modern context because it is, uh, as I say, a film of its time, but it, it is dressed up as a kind of historical narrative. Uh, and it's a very skewed one. It's, you know, the relationship between the white men and the Indians is, is completely glossed over. The, the Indians are, in a sense, the baddies of the film, but they're not absolutely out-and-out villainous baddies. But there is no attempt to convey any kind of um, point of view that they may have had. Um, uh, there is absolutely no sense that um, they were the victims of injustice by being rounded up mm. in reservations and having their, their ancestral lands taken away from them. And all that kind of is just glossed over. And it, you know, the film is 1949. America was at the absolute peak of its military and economic power relative to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. It turns about heroism and courage and duty and mm-hmm. loyalty and all these other things. And these are all, um, you know, fairly accurately and validly portrayed. But mm-hmm. but it's this massive, massive question that's hanging in the air. Well, really, you know along the lines of this, it's not just American imperialism at home, uh, as opposed to the kind of American imperialism in South America or elsewhere in the world that we've all um, become accustomed to. So, I mean, I wouldn't want people to think I'm commending the film as being one, you know, as one which tells you how you should live your life. It's, it's a different attraction, different appeal, mm. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. It's a question maybe in Hollywood at the time of history being written by the victor. I mean, I... I would imagine without with a fairly limited knowledge of westerns from that time period there weren't really any films coming out that were attempting to really portray the the side of the native americans no no i I think you get to the 60s don't you before um there's any real sign of that and the the, the film that obviously springs to mind is soldier blue i don't know if you've ever seen that i haven't seen that one it's again set in the aftermath of the little bighorn but um Mm -hmm. there's a a battle in that I think it's uh, the battle of the wounded knee which is kind of seen from the Indian perspective in fact the whole conflict is seen from the Indian perspective and it flips it all entirely on its head mm-hmm. uh, and shows it you know for what it probably rightly was which was um, domestic imperialism mm-hmm. um, 
but no, not, not in the 40s, far less the 50s even. Um, I can't remember, the searchers were sort of a slightly more balanced approach to the Indians. I mean, the, I suppose the baddies in that were, were renegade Indians, weren't they? Hmm. I mean, there was, yeah, there was also the suggestion with John Wayne's character in that, though, that, you know, perhaps that attitude of that to have such a staunch uh, hatred for the Native Americans was uh, perhaps not the best way to go, you know. When, yes. When he goes on the, the mission to, to rescue rescue the girl, but then there's, you know, he's going to he's gonna kill her if he finds her. So That's right, yeah. 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 I mean... What I watched the film again a few a few days ago, having saw it a year or so ago, and I re- and in in many respects, it's kind of your your classic by the numbers western, you know, cowboys versus Indians, charging of the cavalry, the sounding of the horn, and things like that. But I think to sort of dismiss it as one of those traditional ones, I think there's a lot more going on than. Than it would have you believe, like the the poster or the trailer or something would have you believe, because you know there's yes, it is a story of uh, going on this final patrol, but there's this kind of overarching feeling. It felt felt ahead of its time. It felt like it, there was this overarching comment on like the aging process and the the old soldier and yes. how it, it's almost no country for old men, as it were, to sort of bother yes. the the yes. Coen Brothers film. You know, the, when he has that sit down with the. Um, the elder from the Native American tribe, and they smoke the peace yes. pipe. And I believe the the phrase he uses is "we're too old for war." And you know, it's about yeah. for both of them. You know, they're married, where they both have to turn. You know, they've lived and they've seen that war is perhaps not the answer, but it's up to the the young bucks to kind of lead the way. And yeah. you know, if this was John Wayne playing a, as a traditional John Wayne character, then he pr- probably would have led the charge, all guns blazing. But here he. He's he's not looking for the slaughter. He's looking to avoid that, and I think exactly. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely an element to it that's kind of understated. But I I, I appreciated that, and I don't think that that was something you would get from every western of the time. The the chief that you're talking about, the old guy, is called Chief Pony that walks mm-hmm. in the film, <laughs> and his real name was Chief John Bigtree. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, absolutely correct. I mean, if, if you're looking for um, a redeeming feature from the point of view of the film having a message, then, you know, there is that um, comment about the futility of uh, conflict as seen through the eyes of these uh, older chaps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, see, I, I don't try and sell this film as on, on, on the basis it was profound, thought-provoking, groundbreaking, or the like, Michael. I think... I keep coming back to this point that it's perfectly legitimate in my eyes to watch a film to just let it wash over you and treat it as a spectacle and you know live for the moment as opposed to be um, worried all the time about whether there's any uh, lasting or serious message that you can take away from it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I would hope that um, you know people of your generation, if they viewed it in that spirit, might find it quite interesting because it is just so different. Uh, uh, the whole setup, the way that the characters behave, their manners. There's a million miles from, you know, if you, if you compare it with any westerns that have been made in recent years, it's, it's also less realistic, of course. I mean, I mentioned that it does pretend to have this kind of historical, uh, uh, you know, reporting feel about it, and there's a narrative at the beginning which sounds as if it's 
meant to be taken as red. But I mean, I'm sure that in reality, that life in the US cavalry was a lot tougher, dirtier, meaner, and miserable than it's portrayed in the film. And um, the contest between the, the settlers and the Indians was a much more, um, you know, it was all done from the self interest of the settlers. And I'm sure that the Indians were treated with terrible racism and. Uh, there's no sense of sympathy or understanding for their miserable plight. Yeah. So it's not um, it's not a, a film that you could ever sell on that basis. But that's not the point. I mean, I think if you want to understand what the kind of prevailing mores or the prevailing uh, ethics of the United States of America were in the immediate post-war years, then you'll get a, an insight, into, a clear insight into that from from the film, and the way that these characters behave. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, before I make my decision, I know you did ask. You know, I want to make sure that you've made the, all the cases you want. And I know you said you could talk for a good half an hour on Victor McLagan. So, if, yeah, there, if there's yeah. anything else you want to drop in there before we, we move <laughs> forward with the decision, one, one of my favourite parts of the whole movie is when he's uh, he's out in front of the the platoon and he's uh, now now men, we're going to be going with women on this mission. So mind them words, everyone, mind them words, and then just off in the background, somebody yells, mind them grammar, and I thought that was terrific. I'll say a little bit more about Victor McClane in a moment, but I think we should also, the, the, the guy who um, plays Sergeant Tyree, who's mm. one of the, the Confederates in hiding. Ben Johnson, yeah. Ben Johnson, he's, he's great. I mean, I've seen him in other films, I couldn't tell you which, but you know, he was very much around at that time. And he's involved in that terrific chase. You know, you're talking yeah. about being sped up, but he's a, yeah. one of the biggest action sequences is when he's being chased down yeah. by the Native Americans. I thought, that was, I thought that was terrific. And his catchphrase is that ain't my department captain when he's asked questions I did like that that's a sort of theme through the film as well a lot of these characters actually are quite Dickensian their mannerisms and the way that they um, use the same phrases and patterns of speech all the time are like kind of well known characters from Charles Dickens in various novels I mean to take a very obvious example somebody like Macaulay you know Mr. Macaulay and in um, David Copperfield, Victor McLagan is a classic character of that type. So is the guy, Sergeant Tyree and Ben Johnson, when you mentioned. Mm. The, the, the Major's wife, who I mentioned, Mildred Natwick, uh, that, was her, that was the actress's name. Mm. But I mean, she, um, she could have been lifted straight out of any number of Charles Dickens' books. Mm-hmm. Um, the leading lady, Joanna Drew, that's the actress, she kind of, I don't want to say she vanished without a trace, but she, you know, looking back now, it's surprising it wasn't a more well-known leading lady that was in that part. Yeah. Because, in, as you know, this is one of a trilogy, and in the other, well, at least one of the other two films in the trilogy is Maureen O'Hara, who's the main female lead. Right, yeah, this is the second part of um, the yeah, Cavalry yeah. trilogy, with Fort yeah. Apache and Rio Grande. character, um, he was in loads and loads of films, often playing an Irishman, very often playing a drunk, he wasn't Irish at all, he was born in England, his father was a bishop. Is that right? Bloody yeah, God. yeah, he was brought up in South Africa, uh, he ran away from home to join the army, uh, got thrown out because he was too young, um, before the First World War he became a wrestler and a heavyweight boxer <laughs> in America, 
He, he beat the world reigning heavyweight champion boxer, a guy called Jack Johnson, in an exhibition. But um, then, break of the First World War, he came back to England, enlisted, fought throughout the First World War, and then went back to America afterwards and embarked on a big long film career. He did a lot of lead roles mm-hmm. in the 20s and early 30s, but then was kind of best known latterly for teaming up with John Wayne as he's kind of. Um, Supporting actor, but, um, I, yeah. I, I believe he got the best supporting actor nomination for *The Quiet Man*. Yes, yeah. yes, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Very interesting character. Yeah, very interesting, and uh, he just—I mean, uh, you know, as I said earlier, for the sake of the two or three significant scenes that he has in this film, he kind of makes it a very memorable picture. Michael, that's the best I can do. I'm ready to pass my judgment. And there is going to come a time, because this isn't just going to be everyone shows up and everyone gets a prize. That's not what this is going to be about. There does have to be a time when somebody fails to make a submission into the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame. She wore a yellow ribbon in many ways has kind of been forgotten about and is maybe not as celebrated as a lot of other works in the Western genre. But I think there is plenty about it that makes it stand out. I think there is a strong comical line within the serious drama that runs throughout, which is a kind of down to the acting talent, it's down to the writing, it's down to some of the physical performances, and I think that that is something that makes it stand out a little bit. There's also... um, you mentioned, you know, the love triangle, uh, the, the, the feeling of aging, and then, but also the historical context in it. Um, I think you made a lot of great points. Uh, one in particular that moved me was when you spoke about what a phenomenon the Western genre used to be. And in many ways, it is kind of a dead genre now. I mean, it does get the odd trot out now and again but you know whenever you speak to a modern audio, uh, cinema goer a lot of them will say oh I don't like westerns I haven't seen very many westerns and I think that is a, a sign of the change in times and the t- change in trends but I also think that that is an absolute it's an absolute travesty because I think it is a really really rich and enjoyable genre it's perhaps old fashioned by definition because of its subject matter but I think it can still serve a par- purpose in modern day and um as a kind of historical piece, as maybe perhaps even a film that kind of preserves how films used to be made and how people used to go and see films, I think all of these add up to reasons why She Wore a Yellow Ribbon should definitely be inducted into the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame. So congratulations, it goes in as the seventh film onto the list, the oldest film currently on the list. It is the first Western to go in there, and it will sit alongside The Big Lebowski, Princess Mononoke, Theatre of Blood, Fight Club, Kill List, Stand By Me, and now she wore a yellow ribbon. So congratulations, Ronnie. Michael, I'm absolutely delighted and honoured that my nomination has been included. I didn't actually play my trump card because I thought it was a bit of a cheap shot, but the the second lieutenant is played by an actor who rejoices in the name of Harry Carey Jr. And I would have thought that that alone might have been the grounds to get into the... You see, I I wrote down his name in my notes and it didn't even really occur to me. Harry Carey Jr., that's fantastic. And Ross Purnell is just... 
he he plays that role perfectly. He is yes. just, and he, and he has a lot of growth to him as well. So congratulations um, on that. I'm glad to have it in there. I think it, it's a worthy addition, and I hope for the the tens of dozens of people that listen to this podcast, it yes. might if 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 one person just goes out and watches the film, um, absolutely. I think I think we've done something good. So thank you so much, Ronnie, for being on the show. Oh, mm-hmm. it's been a real pleasure. Yep. An honour to see. Yep. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Tip of the high hat to you. Thanks very much for coming on. Okay. Cheerio. Top of the morning. been a long hard day on the movie trail and we've finally hunkered down for the night enjoying a tin of beans in front of a wildfire under a blanket of stars a big thank you to Ronnie for his very thoughtful submission of She Wore a Yellow Ribbon a film whose entry epitomises why I do this podcast giving people the opportunity to spout on about a film that is very dear to their heart if it's something you're interested in doing then please feel free to get in touch by emailing me at hihatfilmreview at gmail.com if you want to come on the show talk about a film you love and see if it's worthy of a place in the Hall of Fame, then that is the way to do it. Also, be sure to check out the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash hi-hat-film-review. And if you want to catch up on past episodes of the podcast, head on over to iTunes to download, subscribe, and if you feel so inclined, leave a wee rating and review for the show. That's it for me. I'll be back in a week or so with another episode. I'll leave you with the immortal final words of Sergeant Hugo Stiglitz from Inglorious Bastards. Say auf Wiedersehen to your Nazi balls.